Nurses and Hypochondriacs, the podcast that brings nurse experts, patients, and hypochondriacs together to discuss hot topics in healthcare. And here is your host, Ercilia Pompilio. A recent study by the CDC found that nearly 2% of high school students identify as transgender, and more than one-third of them attempt suicide. Transgender youth report greater incidences of bullying, drug use, and sexual assault. In this episode, we explore transgender youth and the transformation of beauty. We'll also talk a little bit about the military transgender ban. Our experts today are Bianca Salvetti and Rob LeBeau. Bianca is a pediatric nurse practitioner at one of the world's largest pediatric transgender programs in all of the United States. She's also a member of the Trans Lifeline Board of Directors. Bianca provides care for gender diverse youth and young adults using an informed consent model. She has experience working with young people affected by HIV, homelessness, and mental health disorders. Rob LeBeau is a producer and director of the human empowerment short documentary film, Gorgeous. He is a self-published author and lifelong photographer. Nurse Backpack is a free mobile app designed to help nurses and nursing students manage both their credentials and careers. The app is awesome and very easy to use. You take a photo of your credentials, licenses, immunizations, and other documents, and it's all stored on a secure cloud-based server. The app allows you to set up two different expiration date reminders so you can get a notification on your phone before anything ever expires. Nurse Backpack will even build a resume package for you. If you input your work history and specialties, then the app will package everything together into a professional PDF for you to send to anyone, allowing you to apply to your dream job with one click of a button. With Nurse Backpack, you never have to worry about losing another document, missing a shift due to expired licenses, or keeping track of all the paperwork. The app does it all for you. Click the link in the description at the end of this podcast to download the free app today. Well, welcome guys to Nurses and Hypochondriacs, Rob and Bianca. Thank you for being on. Hi. Thanks for having us. Cool. So I want to start this episode today telling the story about how we all came together. And I think it happened in 2015 on a street called Chuparosa. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> Chuparosa, that's right. You, you remember Chuparosa? Oh, yeah. On a street called Chuparosa, I was visiting my friend Abner, who was on uh, one of our episodes for Valley Fever. He's a nurse practitioner, a friend of mine, UCLA classmate. And uh, so I was there, and we were having a Mexican cowboy barbecue outside, which he was making carne asada on some grill that he found in his back, like, patio somewhere and he just put it there started this fire put on some uh carne asada and um homemade tortillas and we were eating them and he's like hey i'm gonna call my photographer friend rob he just lives up the street and so rob comes over with his um i remember you had your reader glasses on and and sharing our, our our mexican cowboy tacos and you start showing me your pictures that you had taken for your book, Gorgeous. 
And I was like, these are so cool. You know, oh my gosh, I could see this as a movie. I can see it as a documentary. And so we exchanged numbers. We became friends. A few months later, Caitlyn Jenner had come out. And I was like, oh my gosh, Rob, you got to publish your book now. And I have some friends in publishing. It was like, okay, let me try to help you. And um, Rob kept taunting me get me Caitlyn Jenner as if I was like his agent or something, you know, get me Caitlyn Jenner, get me Caitlyn Jenner. And he would text me randomly, get me Caitlyn Jenner. And I was like, okay, I'll see what I could do. I don't know. Let me, let me see my special powers out there. And all of a sudden on Facebook, Bianca is um, helping out with a gala and she puts on there that, Hey, Caitlyn Jenner is getting a special award and she needs a photographer. And I was like, what? And so I immediately called Rob up. I was like, Rob, I got you, Caitlyn Jenner. And uh, Rob took the assignments, uh, came down to the gala, and um, I went to the gala as well. And there was Caitlyn Jenner in amazing Tom Ford, I have to say. She looked beautiful. <laughs> That's a great story. I forgot about that story, actually. Yeah. So it's, it's just so much fun. And, and here we are today. And uh, go figure, Rob made his book into a movie. That's right. Correct? And now uh, Bianca is a national expert on transgender youth, which I think is pretty amazing how (laughs) things come to be. And so I'm going to start off today, too, with the CDC... um, The CDC headlines that just came out a couple days ago, and it says... uh, The CDC reports nearly 2% of high school students identify as transgender and more than one third of them attempt suicide. So um, tell us a little bit about your work that you're doing uh, with transgender teens and transgender youth. Bianca? Yeah. So I'm a nurse practitioner and, uh, you know, one of the largest pediatric programs we see people up until about age 25, providing like medical care, help with um, name, gender marker change, linkage to any sort of mental health if they need it, um, and social support, which we find to be, I think personally, like the most helpful is just finding somebody who's similar to you and shares your experience a little bit can go a long way. And you know, you're mentioning the statistics about suicidality and oftentimes it's, really related to the fact that they don't feel connected to the world they're in, particularly with their families or, you know, social support. And so, you know, they often seek out other families and hopefully, you know, at our program, we we can offer a little of that, but you know, that's where a lot of it lies is just not feeling accepted in your own home. And so also I was reading some of the articles that you were mentioned in uh, as an expert that there is more now. There are more teens um, identifying as transgender. Why do you think that is? Like at your facility, you see about 100 kids a year, right? Oh, yeah. Actually, maybe even more than that at some point. I think we were up to like two to 300 one year um, of new patients. Yeah. Um, So it's not that there's all of a sudden some fad or some crazy resurgence of, you know, people coming out of the woodworks kind of thing. It's more that it's just a little bit more acceptable and that we're putting time and effort into supporting these people. Um, 
even if it's just a little bit by creating, you know, medical centers, by people even just discussing their stories. I think also access to social media, while there's definitely some downfalls to that too, um, it also helps connect you to people, right? And so <clears throat> we see these young people in communities where they might be the only person that has identified themselves as being trans. And so they're finding their social support online where they realize that they're not the only one, that they have shared experiences. And that makes them feel a little bit stronger about telling people. So I think that's what we're seeing more of rather than that it's a fad or that all of a sudden there's trans people that didn't exist before. So how did you get involved in the work that you do today? I mean, I was reading one article and it says that you started working with homeless youth. Yeah, so it's a little bit of a roundabout. You know, I first started, um, what really even got me interested in adolescent medicine was when I was in school, I got linked to one of the nurse practitioners that does the homeless outreach program where they kind of provide medical care to uh, homeless youth that are at different drop-in centers around Hollywood. And that kind of got me interested in just working with young people in general. I had already been working in pediatrics in the ICU, but um, not really directly with adolescents. And so once they opened up a position, I jumped right in it. Um, and that was really looking at working with HIV positive youth, most of whom um, experience homelessness. So um, I was doing nurse case management there. And I also helped with a PrEP study, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis to prevent HIV acquisition in young people. Um, but once some of that funding kind of ended is kind of how I ended up a little bit more working in our trans program. So fascinating. Yeah. I was talking about, and I was, before we started the recording, I was talking to Rob a little bit about my experience as a teen, because it's hard. You know, I see a lot of teenagers mm-hmm. um, in the clinic that I work at right now. I'm in a practice, um, a community clinic in South Central. Oh. And um, so I see lots of teens, and it's hard to be a teen these days. I mean, we're seeing yeah. a, a huge epidemic in teen depression already, yeah. and I... I think and question its identity. I mean, as, as pediatric nurse practitioners, we know that that's where these kids are trying to figure out who they are, what they are, how they belong into the world. And it's such a pivotal time. So when I was doing the research this morning, I started to think about my identity as a teen and what I went through. And I remember there was a period of time where I started to look more gender fluid. Um, I started to look, my appearance was more androgynous. I shaved off my hair. Um, I was in swim team. And the reason why I shaved off my hair was because it was just easier for me. So I had this really interesting androgynous haircut. And um, I went into my father's closet. My father had super cool clothes from the late 1960s, early 70s. My mom's a seamstress. So, um, you know, she always dressed my father. And so I I would wear his clothes. I would wear his trench coats to school, um, his shirts, his sweaters. And my mom, like, she encouraged it. You know, she was like, well, at least the clothes are being used. You know, that's how she thought. And as an artist, but then I started to really think about my mother as an artist. And in the early 70s, she had made one of my aunts a suit that looked very androgynous. And if you look at her, I mean, she looks so beautiful. And your eye is just drawn 
to the suit and, and her look and everything. And it's just super cool. And, um, you know, and, and I look at my mom and, and she had some periods of gender fluidity where she was more androgynous at times, more feminine at times. And I think that's the beauty of being a person that that is what you can do. I mean, we saw that in David Bowie where he wow. expressed a lot of his androgyny. Did you ever have anything like that in your teen years? Um, personally, I kind of did. Um, I'd say late middle school, early high school, I tended to wear a lot of boy clothes. Um, I shot primarily in the boys section. Very interesting. Um, yeah, I, I actually, I did kind of shave my head too at one point. Um, but I think I was just a little bit more, I was kind of in a punk androgynous type of thing for a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think though, what's interesting about that is I still hold some of that. Like mm -hmm. I'm not a super big fan of dresses and skirts. Me too. Me too. Um, yeah. I'll wear them when I, you know, need to or have to, but it's mm -hmm. like, I still kind of lean a little bit more casual mm -hmm. boy. But <laughs> Me too. I'm a jeans kind of gal. I'll wear my yeah. tennis shoes. You know, now I wear my van, my checkered vans, which the kids, I'll wear them to work and the kids love it, you know? And yeah. Um, or my Converse and stuff like that. But that's just my personality. Um, wow. Yeah, so I, I found that very interesting that I learned about myself. I was like, so I think it's really normal. However, in today's society, I feel that people are like, no, you need to be a girl. You need, you know, it's more yeah. like this has got, yeah. you have to wear. But I was like, huh. I, and, and I guess it's how you grow up and who you grow up with. You know, because yeah, your definitely. mom was very, your mom is also Italian and very artsy. Yeah. And she's an artist. So yeah. I grew up around a lot of LGBT folks, um, you know, even in Oklahoma, which was kind of an interesting thing. Um, I knew trans people then. I knew people who were positive when I was a kid. So, you know, I think her, she was never beholden on any sort of gender norms at all from the very beginning. So it was kind of like, do whatever you want. Um, and, you know, my sister, I think, ended up a little bit more girly than I did. She loves clothes and dressing up and things like that. And I'm more like, uh, I'll buy electronics. I'm <laughs> more like analytical kind of vibe, yeah. not so much into, you know, fashion things. But yeah. you know, maybe a little bit of that, just a little here and there. That's cool. <laughs> How about you, Rob? Well, I feel like today, I feel like the kids are much more free to do what they want. And um, it's really admirable, the work that Bianca does, because it's giving kids resources to be who they want to be. And I feel like I see like the kids today are just, you know, much freer to be who they are because they have such great role models on TV, in movies, you know, social media. And then there's a lot of resources that I think, I don't know if they've always been there, but I feel like there's a lot of resources that help kids just to say, you know, I'm going to be whoever I want to be, you know, like even with YouTube, you know, you see a lot of kids like in dresses and their fathers embracing them. And that's cool. You know, that's like, it'll go viral or something. I saw a, a video recently where a young boy wanted to dress up as a Disney character and his dad also got into a Disney character costume with him. So I just think, you know, and, and I of course have my own issues growing up, you know, growing up gay and not knowing where I fit in and, it wasn't so much about what I was dressed as, but more of like the shame. I grew up with a lot of shame and guilt about my sexuality and my identity. And so 
what inspired me about this project is that, um, you know, and, uh, yeah, and talk about your the book. The book is called The Gorgeous Project, correct? Yeah, what yeah, what inspired me for so long because I was I didn't come from a really community communicative uh, family. So for me, I had to kind of find my way as I went along as I grew up. So when I saw these kids, you know, when I moved to Palm Springs in uh, like 2010, I started going to drag shows and um, just to see the kids that are so uh, confident in who they are was really inspiring to me. And, and uh, I feel like it's a new generation of people and acceptance with who you are, is, regardless of who you are, is like really beautiful. And that, that's actually was the inspiration behind this project and this film. And you were expressing to me before we started also that doing the book and doing the film really helped you with your identity. It did. It taught me, I mean, I feel like the, the common theme of the book and the, and the film is um, self-love. And I didn't grow up with a lot of that. I had to learn that, you know, like to love myself, regardless of what anyone else, any of the labels or what anyone else thought or society. So it took me a long time to kind of, as an adult, to, to find that self-love, you know. And, um, and that's what really truly inspired me about a lot of these, these drag queens and these, uh, these kids that I was shooting, um, that they have like a level of self-confidence that I never grew up with myself. So explain the movie in the, t in the context. So how did you get to photographing transgender people? Well, it started, like I said, it started with my um, fascination with the self-confidence uh, of these drag queens in Palm Springs. That's what started it. And then as I started to do more of a it started to become a body of work, you know? And so as I looked more into the community, which is my community, but I was, as a, as a gay white man, it wasn't, I didn't really see the, the uh, I didn't see the self-love that I saw in this transgender community and the drag queens and the, you know, the club kids. And so I was fascinated with it. And um, the more I dug into it, the more it became a body of work. And then it became an exhibition in uh, 2014. It became a book in 2018, and then this year it's about to become a short documentary film. So it was just an evolution of self-discovery for myself and then also seeing, exploring other people's journeys and what that looked like, you know? So it did was you, beautiful did, to look at. Did you just go up to um, these drag queens and say, hey, can I photograph you? I mean, what was your selection process like? Because you have some pretty amazing people in your movie and in your book. Uh, who are out in the media and doing things. You know, it started kind of like how I started harassing you about Caitlyn Jenner, but it, <laughs> I mean, a little bit, but, but actually Caitlyn is not in my book, but I, I was, I did want to photograph Caitlyn, but um, it started from, you know, getting to talk to some of the local community leaders in Palm Springs. And then I went to LA and I went to New York city and I had some friends help me there in New York city. And I shot, you know, like Amanda Lepore and Buck mm -hmm. Angel and, you know, a lot of high profile people that are community leaders. So it was just a process of, uh, you know, research, Facebook, friends, you know, connections. And um, it just became this body of work. And I think I've shot over like 300 LGBT advocates and uh, artists and performers. And um, yeah, that's what it is. It's pretty amazing. Thank you. That's awesome. So... <clears throat> going back to Bianca, 
you have been speaking to lots of conferences and what is your main message that you're trying to get across to other nurses, other nurse practitioners, healthcare people uh, out there about the transgender youth? Few things. One, it's not new. Um, two, we as nurses could fill in a needed gap. Um, oftentimes, these people circle around multiple providers for years um, and aren't able to link to quality care because no one knows where to send people. Um, so not only getting a little bit our name out, but hopefully that people will start finding the places that are close to them that they can kind of help refer people to. Um, and, you know, also just like not be an asshat is really the biggest <laughs> thing. You know, you might not understand it. Um, you might not know what to do medically. Um, but as long as you're being respectful to people and, and help, you know, guide them to the right place, that, that's enough. Um, you know, you can have a lot of feelings about if you want to be the person that uh, learns enough to provide the medical care, and that's fine. But, you know, as long as you just treat your patients with some respect and get them to someone else, I'm, I feel like my work has been done a little bit there. Um, because I just feel like people spend so many years circling around medical systems um, before they even get a chance to get to my center. And, and it kind of just sucks because there's lots of interventions we can do early on that prevent um, the need for a lot of mental anguish or surgical procedures. And so, yeah, that would be the biggest thing I hope to achieve out of all these talks. I agree with that. I think the best thing is just to be open and to listen, which I try to do with all uh, my teens and families uh, personally as a practitioner. But going back to that, I, I think you bring up a good point. So at what age, what's the youngest age that you see at the clinic? So at the clinic, we see little, little ones, like three years old, but there's not a lot we do. Um, medical care really can't start until somebody has started puberty. Um, so anybody before that, it's really just making sure that they're well supported, that people allow people to kind of explore what their gender may be. Um, we know that gender identity is fairly solidified around age five or so. Um, so, you know, if they come in a little younger, it's just giving time to like see what may happen. If the young person still is very assertive, you know, asserting a gender identity that's different than the sex they were assigned at birth, then we may um, consider puberty blockers. Just and, mm. and that's something that's used also for kids with precocious puberty. So we have a lot of research <clears throat> using it. And it's just a way to, to put a pause on puberty for these people to either, most of the time it's for the parents to get comfortable. Um, mm -hmm. But sometimes it's for the young person to decide to maybe do a little bit more digging, a little exploration on if moving forward with um, more permanent transition would be something that would make sense for them. Um, so hormones usually aren't added until, you know, a little later. We have a couple patients who are um, younger, maybe like 12, 13, but I'd say on average across the U.S. and, and even in our clinic, it's probably 16 or older. Mm-hmm. 
That's that's very fascinating. And um, you guys are not doing gender reassignment surgery yet. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, not at our clinic. That's not an option. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can refer. Um, the hard part is most insurances probably wouldn't cover most surgical interventions for someone under the age of 18. Oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah, there's a few that will consider it. Um, so if somebody's under the age of 18, most of the time that is um, parents paying out of pocket for that. Oh, wow. Yeah. I have a friend who's actually being trained. She's a nurse practitioner. She's being trained as a first assist to do transgender surgery. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, I'll just say, yeah, uh, through Kaiser is doing it. I mean, it's it's a, a well-known thing. So yeah. um, very fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So um, she's being put through the training uh, because there's such a high demand for it, which is pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. And that's, you know, something that we're seeing too is that there's, as people are feeling more comfortable, even considering a medical transition, they're coming into these clinics to access, you know, not only hormones and medical care that way, but surgical procedures. So finding good quality surgeons that even understand the different needs of these people is also a big deal. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. So um, also, I I know you were doing like hair, hair removal as well, correct? (laughs) Yeah, I am. I'm part, I'm just very new, um, learning electrology, um, which is usually what is needed before people have, um, certain surgeries, particularly, um, vaginoplasty, which Mm -hmm. is the creation of a vagina. So in order to do that, they require hair removal around the genitals prior to surgery. Um, and there's not, again, there's definitely electrologists in the world, there's just not that many who understand what is needed for, for this person. Um, to, and also people, you know, are weird a little bit about doing anything in the general area. So it's just limited. Um, and so people are again, waiting to access care for like the two people that feel really comfortable doing it. Well, yeah. And I, I think it's, it, it helps to have a nurse practitioner who is sensitive uh, and who understands what needs to be done, it, it, that just all makes it better. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I just want to go back to a little bit about what we were talking about um, with gender fluidity uh, and the DSM-5 criteria, or um, not the DSM-5, but the APA guidelines, like we know that this toxic masculinity has been in the media lately with the whole Gillette commercial And um, so the APA guidelines had come out and said um, a few months ago that you need to be sensitive to males and how males are being treated on a psychological basis. And one of the things that it said had you had to be sensitive with transgender issues, um, LGBT issues and stuff like that. What do you guys think about that? The whole toxic masculinity thing. Rob, do you uh, want to, or, or go ahead, uh, Bianca? I'll let Rob start. You know, I, I'm not really familiar with the Gillette situation. <laughs> sound of it. Rob, Rob's in his own artistic. So, zone. Bianca, why don't you start? We'll cut this part. Oh, okay. Um, so, a couple things. I mean, actually, about a year or so ago, I watched this really great documentary 
um, on toxic masculinity. I think it's called the masks you wear, something like that. <clears throat> and it really is interesting because it really looks at the idea that in the U.S. we tend to um, shame boys into not being into you know understanding of their own feelings to be verbal about their feelings to cry or show any sort of emotion and yet we don't understand how that may affect who they are later in life right and how that um may play out into uh rape culture the toxic toxic masculinity and things like that um and so i loved the gillette commercial i thought it was really um good but i also had somebody as soon as i posted it be like not all men are like this that's not a thing i'm like yeah i get it but it has to be enough of a thing that we all are seeing it right like that it has been an ongoing historical cultural norm at least um that it has been perpetuated in it and i felt like gillette did a good job of showing that even now things are, you know, they're, they're improving. And, and even us as women, you know, are being more vocal about some of the things that we're experiencing. And I think that allows for men who have not really paid attention to really step forward in a positive way. And so hopefully I think it, you know, shifts and, and people are talking about it. I agree with that. I mean, we had uh, the podcast prior to this one. I did, w I did it on uh, male nurses in the media. And we also talked about toxic masculinity. And I recorded that a few days ago <coughs> with the whole Gillette commercial popping. And I had two very different males on there who grew up two, two very different ways. One was a nurse who his father was a nurse. And um, this nurse was also, he's a filmmaker and an actor and um, he was also a cheerleader. Now, mm. my other guest is an actor who played a nurse, and he grew <laughs> up in a very patriarchal um, family where he saw this, and Leo, the nurse, didn't see this. So, and Leo grew up in Miami where I think there's more fluidity uh, and stuff, so he says, I, I think it's an LA thing, I don't know, you know? Um, so it's a very interesting discussion uh, that we had about it. Um, yeah. From my personal experience, my father uh, took a, he took care of me as a child. My mother worked days, my dad worked swing shift. So he, he took care of me in the daytime uh, for most, for about like the first three, four years of my life um, and had to dress me, had to do my hair uh, and stuff. So I always grew up with a very uh, strong man, but who was very sensitive to my needs as a female. And um, also, you know, getting into my projects and my creative and artistic world. I mean, the, first of all, there's Rob, who has been a great mentor and a consultant on stuff. And we often talk, I have my friend Abner, who's a nurse, and it's the same thing. Um, I have my... Um, podcast um, editor for sound, which is John, who has been an amazing support. And also uh, my webmaster MPD, uh, who's been a great consultant. I mean, I, I work with a lot of men who I feel very, very comfortable in, and they are so supportive. Uh, even my friend Chris, who uh, I was out to dinner with last night, great, great support in all my projects and stuff. So, I mean, I do see, I, the, I think the 
the argument is, yes, there are douchey guys out there, but there's also a lot of good ones, you know, and I think it's with anything. And I think we're focusing on that toxic white male that they want to die. So, yeah. Rob, do you have anything to say? Well, I get what you're saying. Um, I didn't see the commercial, but, um, you know, the only thing I can think about that kind of relates to this is the whole Kevin Hart thing um, about hosting the, the Oscars and that how he was, he came out and said he didn't want to be an ally to the LGBT um, community, hmm. but he was, he, I guess he had said something in his comedy act a long time ago. That's kind of like that toxic masculine masculinity where he's like, you know, <clears throat> he had an opportunity to, to make his voice heard and support the community where he's and, and say, you know, those were just jokes and that, you know, I didn't, I don't really believe that stuff, but he didn't step up, you know, I don't know where it's left off, but that may or may not relate, but. I think it does. I, I, I think because they're so focusing on, it's a, it's a um, Caucasian white male thing, which I don't think it is. Like I said, I, I think it, it could go into different spectrums. Like there's bad people and there's good people. I don't think it's just one race or one, you know, thing. I, I think it's across the board. Uh, and there are a lot of good guys out there as well. I think it's definitely getting better. You know what I mean? It's like, and I think, I think there's a lot of positive out there too, you know, and I think, I think things are changing. It's just, you know, it takes some other, you know, some it's slower than others, you know? Okay. I just want to um, circle around to um, the depression factor, since we do have those CDC guidelines. What, Bianca, do you do? What, what is the level of counseling? Like, say someone does want to start undergoing um, hormonal treatments. Do they immediately first go seek counseling, or what is the process that happens? So there historically have been a lot of programs that forced um, people to basically see a therapist or psychologist to be assessed if they were ready for hormones before they could access hormones. And what people found was that it didn't help really anything. And I think really what it ended up doing was just making um, the medical provider feel a little bit better about prescribing hormones that this person wouldn't change their mind, per perhaps, if they had this big, long psychological analysis for months on end. Um, and they would usually have to pay for that to themselves. So um, our medical director kind of moved away from that model. And now we're in a more informed consent model. And, and that's true for like all of medicine. And so that was a big thing is that we want to make this the same across the board for everybody. There, you know, you don't have to have some big psychological analysis to particularly take any other medication to make sure that you're going to take them the way we think you should or, you know, anything like that. And all of those things could potentially change aspects of your body, right? Um, usually affecting your mental health or something like that. So what we do is we actually just, um, we do have them meet with our social worker beforehand just to get a sense of like how they're supported. Because again, we know that people who are more supported do better. Um, and the people that are less supported who are potentially homeless or just don't have that strong family support um, might have challenges while they're on hormones. And the other big thing I try to counsel on is that, you know, your changes are slow. It's like going through puberty all over again, which usually sucks for most people the first time, 
The second time can be worse because now you're closer to an adult and people don't give you the same benefit of the doubt when you act like you're 12 or 13 um, as you do when you are 12 or 13. And mm -hmm. so just making sure that they have realistic expectations for what it will be like. Um, the other big thing is that, you know, when this is a commitment to be on a medication and you know, too, just as being a nurse practitioner in general, you can't get teens to take anything oh, yeah. consistently. Yeah. Um, right. They can have like the nastiest infection you've ever seen. You're like, you need to take this antibiotics for seven days and very few will end up taking it for the whole seven days. Right. And the non um, yeah, these, huge non-compliance. Right. Right. There's so much <clears throat> non-adherence. Mm -hmm. And so in this field, it is very, very low in regards to non-adherence because they want these changes. People want to, um, you know, take the medicine. And so the people that find that it, this wasn't the best idea for them or for some reason it doesn't work for them, they'll stop pretty early on and there won't be any long-term side effects really. So um, we don't really see it that often, but it gives people a lot of time to kind of assess if that was the right choice. The other thing too is <clears throat> historically there was a lot of push to force people to be on hormones to access certain medical procedures. And so huh. we also are moving away from that because not everyone wants hormones, even though they might want certain surgical procedures. And so it's really giving people a little bit more choice and autonomy around it and under, and also really giving them that education to understand what will the medicines do? What won't they do? And are those things what you want? I agree. I, I think those are excellent points that you all put out there. It's pretty awesome. Um, my other thing that I want to jump into, another headline that's going on in the um, in the media is the whole transgender military personnel in limbo over the Trump plan. So um, I have like some headlines here. Yeah. What do you think about that, Rob? I mean, you were discussing that with me via text. I think it's so horrible that, I mean, that just it seems like Trump is just picking off one, you know, each of these groups one by one, you know, whether it's people trying to seek asylum in our country, but to pick on the transgender people that are, that are doing such an amazing service to our country, you know, it's just, it's so wrong on so many levels and it, it's, it's hurtful, you know, it's hurtful to my friends that are transgender. It's, it's, it's hurtful to humanity and, it, you know, it's horrible. I, I'm just, it really upsets me. I see my friends that are upset about it. Um, and it's, it's, it's just despicable, you know, it's, it's really hard to watch that happen to, to good people that are, you know, that shouldn't factor into it, any of it, you know, everything that he says about it is misinformed. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, it's just, it's, it's wrong on every single level. I think um, there's an attorney in New York contesting it now. So um, they're trying to put a, a stop to it uh, in a ban. And there's several um, things, even this one uh, ex-military dude, hold on here. Let me get that one. Retired General McChrystal on military's transgender ban. I think it's a mistake. And so his quote is, I think it's a mistake to lose that talent. Somebody with those attributes, the willingness and the capability to serve, not being welcome is a negative message to send, which I fully agree. Yeah, me too. It's 
crazy. I mean, like, we already don't have very many people that want to be in the military. Exactly. So it seems like why, based on just one little thing, why limit those folks who want to want to serve and they're doing a good job. They don't, it's not like they have some sort of proof that trans folks are somehow detrimental to being in the military. It's just all personal. And that's just a crazy way to run any sort of government. I totally agree. Um, another thing that was circulating a few months ago, which I thought was very interesting. And I, I and this goes to the education part on how we educate children in general about what's going on with their bodies and how transgender kids are educated. So there was this whole article about a British school district to teach eight-year-old kids that all genders can have periods. I mean, what are you, I mean, to me, because I've had a lot of uh, precocious puberty kids coming in lately, I'm very, very sensitive to these young females who are going through the uh, puberty process or the menstrual cycle process before it's time. You know, they're nine and 10 years yeah. old. And I'm super, super sensitive to them, you know, um, because sometimes they don't even tell their moms and they tell me. So <laughs> they're like, hey, by the way, um, I wiped and I saw this. What is it? And yeah. I'm like, oh, <laughs> You know, and I, I have to open up the conversation with the mom there. And I'm just, I'm very, very sensitive to this. Um, and I, I don't think it's a good thing, you know. Uh, and, and, it, and it starts out as more girls today are seeking to transition to become transgender boys. A town in England has advised its sex education teachers to tell students as young as eight that all genders can have periods. Not exactly true, but your thoughts? So it's interesting. So I think, I think, I think they need to explore that a little bit more on how they're going to relay that information. I feel like the instead of really focusing on the gender at eight, you really should probably more focus on the body part. And so anyone that has a uterus could have a baby or like you know have a period. I mean, um, I think that's an excellent point that you're bringing up. Right, and, right and that, if you have a uterus, because there are women without uterus, right, who, who right. don't who have periods. So, true. like an eight-year-old is a little bit more concrete, and sometimes just being very blatant with it, like it's that that makes it where you have a period. So, if you don't have this, then you don't have a period, right? I, I think, and that might some people are like, oh, that's too much. An eight-year-old doesn't understand what a uterus is. No, they but I think that's where our understand. problem lies too, yeah. in especially in the U.S. is we don't talk about body parts as they are. Mm -hmm. um, we try to skirt around the issue. We really don't like to talk about anything reproductive as it really is as a, uh, an organ that functions. Do you know what I mean? I, I, um, I think this is, this is awesome. Yeah. I'm, I'm really loving your perspective. Into yeah. Sexual health. And, and I feel like it, I feel like it should maybe be pulled a little bit from that and stop thinking so much about the gender aspect of it and just think about the mechanics of it. The anatomy. I, I yeah. fully agree with you. I think that's a great point. That would be such a great article if you would write it <laughs> to counter that. I, I could totally see you as writing uh, that. Uh, well, maybe I should. Yeah, I think you should. I'll, I'll forward you some of these articles, and I think it would be a great article for you to write in the Atlantic to counter how we do teach. You know, because I, I think that's that's very, uh, it's wrong. I mean, I, I, your perspective is good. You got a uterus, this is what happens. It's very basic, you know. Right. And I think um, 
And the reason why I even say that is because my years of working in pediatrics, not even adolescents, it's like all across the board, people really don't understand how their bodies work. And particularly that area, because we always hold on to it as being a sexual organ. And so it, people don't even learn most of that information until later in high school. And it's like, things are happening. Like, why can't we just talk about it as like the same way we would with a heart or your exactly. eyeball or whatever? This is what it does. I, I fully agree with you. No idea about their anatomy or how anybody's anatomy works. I fully agree. I just want to touch up about uh, a, a little bit on the history of trans, um, the whole transgender movement. I mean, Rob, you, we were chatting a little bit about it, how it, it started more as um, uh, a transsexual trend. I, do you want to go ahead and, ex and just expand on that? What do you mean like a transsexual trend? Well, like, like we, we were talking about cross-dressing how um I, I think that's the whole that's just basically how the whole movement started I mean, um hold on i have something here uh, where am i going with this was that your dog barking in the background it's yogi yogi, yogi. <laughs> there's dogs that invade the podcast sometimes the whole ev the whole evolution of terminology i mean i have here that this psychiatrist do you know um, his name is John F. Olivan of uh, Columbia University, coined the term transgender in his, his 1965 reference work, Sexual Hygiene and Pathology. Um, and uh, he said transsexualism is misleading. Actually, transgenderism is meant because sexuality is not a major factor in primary transvestitism. So, um, uh, Bianca, do you want to expand on that? Um, so I, I don't remember, I, oddly enough, I think my friend has that book. I have a friend who's like oh, super into gender history. Uh -huh. Um, but I, so I forget that guy specifically, but you know, the idea of people identifying as a gender that is different than maybe the sex they were assigned at birth has spanned since the beginning of time. And we know, I think it's in Mesopotamia, there's like pottery shards that they found that show three genders. There's been multiple um, other cultures historically that have identified more than two genders. And it wasn't really until colonialism that came around and kind of forced more of the binary. <clears throat> and it kind of fell away a little, little bit in, you know, 20s, 30s, um, there were, oh, I think that's where you're talking about some of the cross-dressing mm -hmm. stuff. There were things called like gay balls, things like yes, that. Yes, yes. Um, cross-dress a little bit, um, which was technically illegal, but when they were in the prohibition, it was kind of allowed in some of these places where they were, you know, having still drinks, basically. They were still having alcohol and parties. A lot of times it was at these gay balls. And um, I was actually reading stuff about like, um, like Langston Hughes would go to some of the ones in Harlem all the time. Hmm. Um, so it was pretty, you know, it's kind of like the hot place to be. Um, but once alcohol came back and, you know, people could kind of go wherever, a lot of those places ended up kind of becoming 
the beginnings of like gay bars or LGBT bars. And, you know, as that happened, there were actually some medical centers that started opening up kind of in the 50s and 60s. But by the 70s, a lot of that was, again, turned around as being, um, you know, taboo or outside of the norm. Um, And they started close. And I think it actually came from a guy at John Hopkins. Interesting. Um, And they actually had a center, but one of their psychologists deemed it to be, you know, like a sexual deviant kind of practice. Um, And so that's kind of what ended up putting it back into a place of like hiding Uh um, and harassment, which led to a lot of um, political uprivals like Stonewall or um, the Black Cat, you know, um, these riots within with police forces coming out just specifically to target um, people. Um, who were LGBT, but particularly trans folks. Um, And so then again, I think people kind of went into hiding a little bit, if you will. It wasn't where people wanted to come out because, or like at least let themselves be as known because of the harassment they were receiving. And it's only been recently that, you know, as we see people being more accepting again, people feel more comfortable showing who they are. And that's kind of where my, my project picks up, where it's like giving representation to some of the, um, you know, the gender nonconforming and the uh, these non-binary and the, the trans folks and, and just giving them a little bit of uh, representation and inclusivity and, and, and showing the beauty in the divide, the, 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 uh, excuse me, the, divide, the diversity of everybody, you know what I mean? Just not, not just the trans or the gay or the bi's, you know, it's, it's everybody, no matter what you are, whatever you're representing, gorgeous, you know, the, the, the mission to that is to just to show how beautiful we are as humans, you know, not regardless of what you're representing or, you know, what your sexual orientation is or your gender or anything else like that. So that's, my book is, you know, it's, it's about including everyone and showing how beautiful that can be just when people are themselves and that they're just being themselves. That's the beauty in, in what I found in my photo project, you know? What I found uh, fascinating about your pictures, and I was talking to you a little bit about that this morning when I, when I called you out of bed with my flummy. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, what's going on with you? <laughs> They're having some issues. Um, But yeah, I I said, you know, with your pictures, for me, I am so drawn with them. Like, I just keep wanting to look at them even more. Because I think um, what's going on in my brain, and this is what I've I've read for other uh, studies that I've I've read, is I'm trying to process what is going on. And it, it draws me in even more. Uh, and, I, and I think it's very, very fascinating where I can't stop looking at your pictures. When you had your home um, in Cathedral City in the Cove, you know, you had beautiful, beautiful, beautiful uh, pictures up. And I was just so drawn to the Lepore portrait that you had that was the main portrait as you walked into your home, which was beautiful. And now you have... Um, at one of the clinics, uh, is it is it the HIV clinic? Um, Ab- one of Abner's clinics, right? Uh, it is. One of the clinics has several of my pieces. 
But the fu funny thing is that I, when I knew I was coming on uh, your show to talk about, you know, the trans representations from my, the people in my book, I had to think like, oh, who are the trans people that I've shot? You know what I mean? Because I just think of them all kind of grouped as one, you know, mm -hmm. as an LGBT empowerment piece, you know? I, I had to think of like, okay, so these are the, my trans characters in this project. But to me, that's, everybody is just kind of like, the whole project is, is one. It's not just a trans project or a gay project or, you know what I mean? So, it, and, and everybody's it's represented. Yeah. yeah, it's LGBTQ+, yeah, it's, QIA+, and they're all there. So it was just like... Um, I, don't know, I think as we move forward, you know, it's 2019. I think as we move forward, I think, I think it's the, the, the labels, hopefully we can drop some of the labels. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's a goal of like, not to have to label everyone. Like, you know, this person is trans. I agree. This person is bisexual yeah. or this person is, you know, is transvestite, you know, it's who cares? Like just everybody just love each other, be, be yourself, you know, and embrace other people that are just themselves as well. You know? I totally agree. I just wanted to, before we wrap up, I wanted to bring up an interesting um, uh, fact that I found when I was doing my research and I was hearing other people's podcasts um, talking about transgender and what's been going on. And someone in a podcast brought up that the Wachowski siblings, mm -hmm. uh, do you know the Wachowski siblings? They are the, um, the writers of The Matrix, the movie right. The Matrix, mm -hmm. um, and also Cloud Atlas. Like both of them, transitioned mm -hmm. I, I think that's very fascinating so um it's interesting but anyway interesting. anything uh the two of you would like to add um before we wrap up anything you'd like to pitch i mean bianca you're going to be at nap nap i'm so excited about that to come see yeah, you. i'll be um presenting a lecture at nap nap in new orleans in march um again just trying to uh give more information to pediatric nurse practitioners to hopefully help expand um, young people's access to care is my goal. Um, hopefully at that point, my study will be IRB approved. So that way I can start um, disseminating that. Basically I got some funding to look at um, the benefit. Well, hopefully we'll find out that the benefits of um, binding your chest for people who identify as transmasculine um, of any sort. Uh, so hopefully we can write something out of that data that we find um, that really helps young people access binders uh, as a step to um, the time where they can get chest surgery. Interesting, fascinating. And Rob? Well, Bianca, thank you so much for all the work you do. It's like amazing that, you know, that, that you do all the work that you do. And I hear stories from Ursilia that, um, about all the cool things you're working on. So thanks for all that. And Ursulia, I love your podcast. If you want to check out my photos, my, um, my, there's a gorgeous page on Facebook under gorgeous to find out exhibitions or film showings. And that's it. That's all I got. Well, you're, you're going to be at the Santa Fe um, film festival, the LGBT one, right? Talk about that. Oh, the Santa Fe film festival is coming up on uh, February 17th, Sunday night. And then I'll be back in the desert in Coachella Valley for um, at the Tolerance and Education Center, March seventh, and uh, through Buddha Bullying. And uh, Dimitri's going to show my film and have a reception on March seventh for anyone in Coachella Valley. And that's all I've got right now, as far as awesome. the film. Yeah. Well, thank you both for being on the podcast. It was a very interesting, interesting discussion, uh, and, and I hope it stimulates more discussions for people to be had out there. 
And thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Awesome. Thank you for listening to another episode of Nurses and Hypochondriacs. We would so appreciate you giving us a five-star rating. And don't forget to download the Nurse Backpack app. It's free. It's easy to use. It's great credential management. It's secure. It's safe. It gives you expiration date reminders, puts together a resume package for you, and you get the ability to send documents and your resume to anyone. Go ahead, download the app today. The link is at the end of the podcast notes. Also follow us at Nurses and Hypochondriacs on Facebook, Nurses and Hypochon on Twitter, and on Instagram, we're under Rogue Nurse Media. Till next time. <laughs>